We prove reasonable things too quickly, while counterintuitive ideas are frequently treated with suspicion. Suggest cutting the price of a failing product, and your boringly rational suggestion will be approved without question. But if you suggest renaming it, and you'll be put through a whole series of grueling PowerPoint presentations, research groups, multivariate analysis, and God knows what else, and all because your idea isn't conventionally logical. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Series 2 of Silence, Please. Most valuable discoveries don't make sense at first. If they did, someone would have discovered them already. And ideas which people hate may be more powerful than those which people like. The popular and obvious ideas having all been tried already. In short, we should test counterintuitive things, because no one else will. In this series, we'll be using topics from Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy, to explore the relationship between creativity and behavioral science in advertising. I'm Ollie Henderson from Silence Media, and at Silence, we have a book club that meets up every now and then to discuss books about advertising. Our next book is Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense by Rory Sutherland. If you'd like to join us at book club, I'll give you the details at the end of the podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the value of working counterintuitively. My guest today is Martin Doyle, digital client partner at Arena Media. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Martin, can you explain what acting counterintuitively means in respect to digital advertising? I think in my view, internet advertising, because of the environment that it's in, um, is built on ones and zeros. So whether that's logic, algorithmic paths, user journeys, you know, all these things that can be mapped um, that used to be by humans, and now increasingly it's by machine learning um, with increasingly high success. So to bring the book into play, um, which I really enjoyed, um, Rory Sutherland says, human mind doesn't run on logic. Um, and I've definitely worked with some people who would counter that. Um, but my mind certainly doesn't always work on logic. Um, it's the reason that I continue to follow Everton Football Club, despite the fact that we've achieved absolutely nothing in the last 30 years. And it's why, rather than drinking um, standard mass-produced lagers that I can get at an affordable price, I choose to drink craft beer in small tins with silly names for twice the price. And I know that's something that that you enjoy on the weekend too. Um, So I think what, what I'm trying to say there is that Um, that shouldn't make sense and it wouldn't to a machine and in the same way I think we can relate that back to being brave in advertising um, and look further than the ones and zeros of the internet so not building a campaign purely around cost per something um, that for me is is what acting counterintuitively is all about yeah because I think there is a tendency particularly with digital to boil everything down to some sort of data point isn't there Yeah, I think so. Um, I think you could look at it as a fear of data, but I think it probably comes down to a a time pressure. Um, I'm a trivial person a lot of the time, but when I'm in the office and when I'm working, I'll always lean towards what the numbers say because it's the the safety blanket. It's a lot easier to go to a client and say, this is what the numbers say and therefore is fact rather than here's what I feel and therefore is an opinion with no, not necessarily any scientific basis. Right. And, and does that does that also apply to those situations where 
maybe we see some data which actually doesn't match what our um, hypothesis said was going to be true. I think I see those examples where something happens at some point in the campaign, um, you see a data point which looks unusual, but perhaps there's a tendency sometimes to perhaps not cover it up, but certainly make the client look elsewhere. Is that something you've come across? Yeah, I think definitely, definitely seen that a lot. I think it comes down to the fact that every agency now employs teams of data scientists whose job it is to pick this stuff apart. And you don't see an agency with a similar level of magic thinkers or some sort of uh, philosophizers. Um, I think that's what Sutherland gets to in his book, the whole alchemist theory, um, because it's much harder to justify to, to your boss uh, a theory or a feeling than it is uh, a number or a data pattern. The one thing I would say is when it comes to ignoring anomalies, I think th- there's an irony that the advancement of econometrics allows us to isolate and take uh, those anomalies apart and try and understand why certain trends are happening. Um, so what I would say is that I definitely think data is a good thing. Um, Rory Sutherland says it's it's possible to be logical and wrong, um, but I don't think it happens very often. So with data, and again, sort of making the point about digital advertising specifically, why do you think we've got hung up on it so much when you know, traditional media, as we like to call it, TV, print, never necessarily carried that same demand for us to demonstrate perhaps the attributable value of our media spend towards sales? Yeah, I think it's because digital is equally the best and worst medium out there. Um, And you're dealing with people who are simultaneously philosophical thinkers and also data analyzers um, in this industry. Um, One example that I definitely put forward for that would be viewability. So the fact that we can monitor every single ad impression served to every single person and try and get an idea of who that is versus, say, TV, where we look at 5,000 homes on the barb panel, um, and that's, that's given us as gospel. Um, so if we, can, if we can work out viewability um, to the exact number, then, yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And, and 95% viewability, to me, that sounds like a, a really strong campaign. Um, but I've had clients who've come back before and said, well, what about the other 5%? So that 95% viewability sounds fantastic until you scale that up to serving 20 million impressions and suddenly you've wasted money on a million impressions. Now, you would never do a press campaign and have a media owner come into you and say, 95% of these magazines were seen by people we think, oh, but 5% of them went straight into landfill and recycling and were never saw again and were pulped. So I think just because we can doesn't mean we necessarily should, but that's kind of the path that we've gone down. Um, on TV, there's never been a, a click here. I mean, there was the, the green button a few years ago, but there's never been a click here or a path to purchase. Um, and I think that shows. So I, I noticed a stat that last year, 75% of digital video um, was just a repurposed TVC. So my question to you would be, what would happen if you took away all measurement systems from media? So we couldn't measure TV, we couldn't measure digital, we couldn't measure, measure radio. Do you think we'd see changes? Well, 
I mean, I think actually, just to go back to your point about measurement, I agree completely that in just because you have it doesn't mean you should use it. And actually, just to take your point about viewability, look, it's better, isn't it, that we can see that an ad's load on, loaded on a page and that that ad's loaded on a page for one second. But I would also argue whether that's at how much effect that might have actually had. I mean, this is a thing. And, and this is where you start getting into metrics, determining your view on what's successful and what's not. And I think that's a good point. I mean, ultimately, clients who have traditionally used TV advertising and have then switched that off and seen a decline in sales might justifiably make the argument that TV helps drive sales because when I switch it off, we don't see it. But of course, I think the challenge is isolating that sales data when there is so much noise there's so much marketing through various channels and it's very difficult i think to switch everything off and then gradually test each individual channel for a lot of big brands i mean you know your clients here are running every single channel there would be i assume and you know it's difficult to run econometric tests isolating each of those channels in different locations at different times a day um so yeah i, I mean look i i agree measurements uh, in and of themselves don't tell the whole story but i suppose you know it's it's about finding a balance between those useful things which are ultimately going to help determine whether things sell stuff which is what we're in the business of doing um versus you know, clients holding you to ransom because they've got access yeah, to so know, much data. It's so easy to demonise digital. That's the that's the the problem. Um, but the one caveat I would give is that increasingly now, personalised um, digital ads, um, episodic content that can be served via digital, digital is getting stronger and stronger at being able to uh, prove its worth. I think. Yeah. And what's the value, though, in that, those personalised ads? Because we've had a, I've had conversations with a few people in these podcasts about the relative value of hyper-targeted digital advertising. Um, and I agree. I think if you can make content relevant, more relevant to the individual who's seeing it, that's got to be a good thing. Yeah. From a branding point of view, though, and sort of the idea of growth for a brand, uh, you wonder whether solely applying a hyper-targeted digital strategy, if you, if you call it that, is actually a very good thing in the first place because, of course, you, by nature, you're only targeting those that you consider to be your audience, yeah. your customer base, yeah. and you, can't, you don't give yourself the opportunity to grow beyond that. So, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, and I think it, who gave advertising the right to be that intrusive? Um, you know, and I think if, if something comes up on my PC to say, hello, Martin, are you interested in this product? You know, that's akin to someone putting a virus on my computer. It is very intrusive and, and that's something that's quite personal to me. However, if a TV ad was served that said, hello, Martin, I'm, I'm not sure I would feel that same level of unease. And I don't know, there's just something that's a little bit it's easier to demonise digital media than it is traditional media, and maybe that's because they're just more trustworthy. And I, I we probably don't have time to dig into the reasons why that is, but it, it is fact, I think, in this country and, and globally. So returning to the idea of counterintuitive thinking, now, we gave the example about when anomalies come up within a campaign and how we react to that. And there are two ways to react. One is to ignore it. And the second is actually to consider it as an opportunity to understand more about 
how customers are responding to the advertising that you're putting putting in front of them. So I'm just wondering if you can give us any practical advice about how to plan counterintuitively and that maybe planning in advance of a campaign or, or during a campaign when you receive the data. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I thought when, when I was reading through this book and, and thinking about my own experience, when I, when I went to university, I had the opportunity to study English language or English literature. And up until that point, it had always been um, English combined, if you like. Um, I chose English language, but then I also had friends who did English lit. And I always found it a really interesting uh, difference in that, you know, what makes up a really great piece of writing? You can look at it as I did and say, well, they use this metaphor and this simile and this sentence clause and these linguistic devices that meant that we could look at it and say, this person has a really good grasp of the English language. Or you can read a novel or a poem from an English literature perspective and not worry about the words that they use. You can just say, do you know what? This is a really emotive piece of writing. It's really strong. Um, this this person makes me feel like this. It gives me butterflies in the stomach. Um, you can't always define how to give somebody butterflies in the stomach. Um, and, and I think Sutherland sums that up by saying we don't have introspective access to our, our own motivations and logic kills off magic, which again is another sad truth. So I think from a, a planning perspective is to firstly treat all briefs as completely new projects, um, test measure refined strategies, but test something wacky, try something new, don't be the don't be afraid to be the person that comes into a room and say, what if, or why don't we try this? Because a lot of the times clients will at least be interested. They still need to be backed up by data and they'll still want you know, 90% of it to be tried and tested or, or successful case studies. But I think don't be afraid to take feelings to a data fight would be, uh, would be my, my summation of it. Yeah. And I'm interested also to get your perspective on this idea of behavioral science and the value of it to advertising. So I've been asking this of every guest on this series. Rory Sutherland talks about the value of behavioral science um, being representing three things, one of which is that it can just help us come up with more interesting, more oblique creative ideas. The second is that those ideas um, are more easily explained through behavioral science and the understanding of human nature and the third is just fundamentally that behavioral science gives us as marketers something concrete around which to anchor our discipline so it's kind of gives legitimacy to marketing and advertising and creativity so do you see that in reality you know when you're working with a client if you wanted to come up with an idea which was a little wacky how do you explain it you know how do you say well and I know you, you have the idea of about 70, 20, 10 in planning. So perhaps 10% representing a part of the budget, which is for experimenting, not waste. Yeah. I think that's wrong. I just think that fundamentally that's a wrong term. Yeah. But for experimenting, do you, do you see behavioral science as a useful tool around which to anchor an idea which might otherwise seem irrational? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I said, I, I really am not here to take apart that side of what we do because it's vitally important it's a measure of our success and ultimately that's that's the reason that agencies get paid because they prove that their ideas work um but i think that 10 percent 
wackiness, experimentation is, is really important. Um, unfortunately, it's also the easiest 10% to hack off when a campaign isn't going particularly well or when marketing budget needs to be moved into to sales support or something like that. Um, so it's a challenge um, and I hope that, that clients are receptive to it, but I think it will always be the easiest 10% to hack off uh, the, the side that is emotive uh, and emotionally driven as opposed to the 70 or even the, the 90% that is data backed and, and proven to work. So, of course, Rory Sutherland illustrates his point with some interesting examples in the book. I'm just, I'd be interested to know whether you've got any which jump out at you either from the book or from your own experience, which kind of demonstrate the idea that it's worth putting both the time in conceiving an idea, but also the investment in, in spending money to try and promote an idea which seems irrational at first. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many... But- a lot of these ideas now seem every day. You know, something like a Netflix, for instance. If you'd have, if we'd have had that idea in, when was it, 1995, 96, something like that, we would have been laughed out of the room. Um, but obviously, that that dominates the world now. I think since I've come into the business, um, things like viral videos and influencer marketing would probably be the two areas that have have grown the most. Influencer marketing. I mean, sometimes that still doesn't make sense to me. Um, but but that's something that data science hasn't even caught up with yet. That's still, even after, what, five, six years, maybe even longer of of, um, influencer marketing, it's still that uh, wacky idea that works, but we can't quite prove it. And yet brands are queuing up to work with people. You know, take people from Love Island, for instance. Some of the people that would not necessarily see them as aspirational figures, if they were to bring out, uh, you know, a makeup range or something like that, would still be a bestseller, and that that doesn't make sense. That is completely counterintuitive. Um, that people would laugh at these people, watch them on TV, and 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 kind of feel like, you know, I don't want to be them, and yet will buy the makeup that they use and. You can see that from the number of product placements that ITV managed to pull in this year for Love Island. This brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you very much to our guest, Martin Doyle from Arena Media. A huge thank you to Penguin Random House for providing us with extracts from the Alchemy audiobook. Our music is by Super Thriller. If you'd like to join us to discuss alchemy, we're meeting on the afternoon of Thursday the 3rd of October at the Pembury Tavern in Hackney. Visit the Silence Media website for more details. And don't forget the first rule of book club, you don't have to read the book. In our next and final episode, we'll be discussing behavioural biases, the shortcuts we rely on to make decisions more quickly, and how advertisers can use them to their advantage. Goodbye. Goodbye.